In the past few years, my generation has observed the fall of dictators such as Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-il, and Muammar Gaddafi, not to mention terrorists like Osama bin Laden. Their deaths remind us that no matter the severity of the suffering, there comes a time when it will end. A bad king cannot live forever. There is always hope that tomorrow's regent will be better. For example, the king is dead. Long live the king. In America, we have shortened that time considerably. We theoretically have the ability to overthrow the government every four years at the ballot box. Barring the way to the tree of life seems to us as punishment, but it could also be affirmation of a God who graciously gives us what we need, an anticipated finality to the misery of our sin and its consequences in the world. The narrative accounts of the fall and Cain's murder of Abel bear many similarities, not the least of which being God holding the offenders accountable for their actions. It must be conceded that there is within us not just the desire to sin, but also the tendency not to own our sins. Some do this by practicing a robust self-righteousness, but this makes us no friend of God. The Lord swore that the offspring of the serpent and of the woman would be at enmity with one another, and since Jesus accused the religious leaders of his day of being children of the devil, that should give us pause. Yet others avoid owning their sins by making excuses. Someone once told me that excuses are like armpits. Everyone has them, and they all stink. By listening to our excuses— one would think that our sins are always someone else's fault. But maintaining a biblical view of sin requires us to confess our culpability. Reconciliation with the Father is impossible as long as we deny ownership of our transgressions. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. A confessed sin, no matter how terrible, is never beyond the forgiveness and redemption our Creator offers. We shouldn't ignore the fact that the second oldest story in the Bible is a cautionary tale about worship attitudes. Abel stood justified before God, because he gave to God out of the best that he had. His attitude was characterized by humility and trust, and he thus offered his sacrifice by faith. On the other hand, Cain's sacrifice seems to have been rejected because, for him, it wasn't much of a sacrifice. It cost him hardly anything. Thousands of years later, God remains very concerned with the attitudes of his people when they worship him. Awe, gratitude, and surrender should characterize our approach, not dismissiveness, greed, or self-absorption. If we give God the leftovers of our time and attention, we can hardly expect better treatment than Cain. Does worship steal your breath away? Has it cost you something? Does it leave you feeling small? These are important questions. That Enoch was the only one in Genesis chapter 5 to escape the plague of death should not escape our notice, reflection, or comment. It certainly did not elude the author of Hebrews, 
chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, who eloquently noted that Enoch's faith made him pleasing to God. In our present culture, people will flock to athletic clubs, avoid food preservatives no one can pronounce, and obsess over their caloric intake in an effort to cheat death as long as possible. But while bodily training is of some value, faith and godliness are the only true ways by which we can escape this world and inherit the one to come. Our faith is to be in Jesus, who violently destroyed death at the cross. As was modeled by Enoch, godliness is to be expressed by an intimate walk with the Lord. Where communion with God has been restored, there deliverance from death is bound to follow.